Welcome to Morning Report Top Stories, a selection of news from RNZ's morning news programme. Well, the Transport Minister and Auckland's Mayor seem set for ongoing fierce debate over how some of the city's major transport projects will be paid for as a date has been set now to axe the regional fuel tax. Aucklanders have been paying an extra 11.5 cents a litre on fuel since back in 2018. That will now stop at the end of June this year. The Mayor, Wayne Brown, is warning the future of some existing projects hangs in the balance and the government had better listen up. Here is our political reporter, Katie Scotcher. The Auckland regional fuel tax is heading to the scrap heap. But we just don't think it's fair to be charging Aucklanders another 11.5 cents a litre to build speed bumps. After almost six years, the tax will end on the 30th of June. These Aucklanders can't wait. I think it's great news. Aucklanders need a break. Well, that's got to be good. It means I'll probably use my car a bit more, um, which isn't necessarily a good thing. Well, that, that'd be, that's good for us, isn't it? Extra money is needed. The city's mayor, Wayne Brown, isn't as excited. He says the government's decision will leave his council with a shortfall of $1.2 billion and little choice. Pay more rates or stop doing things, and I'm not in a rush to pay more rates, so we'll be stopping doing things. The regional fuel tax has raised almost $800 million of revenue since it started in 2018. $340 million of that has not yet been spent. Transport Minister Simeon Brown wants that money to pay for the next stage of the Eastern Busway and electric city rail link trains. But Wayne Brown says there's going to be a funding gap to finish the busway and a shortfall for dozens of other projects. The final stages of the Eastern Busway, Glenvale Road, Lake Road, the proposed old airport to Botany Busway. The government wants to look at other ways of paying for infrastructure projects like tolling and public-private partnerships. Simeon Brown also plans to introduce legislation which would allow congestion charging to be rolled out across Auckland. So we're working with the Ministry of Transport around the policy design on that at the moment. I don't have firm details around the exact timing, but it is a priority uh, for this year. The Green Party's Julianne Genter, who is a former Associate Transport Minister, expects it could take years to introduce such a scheme. They haven't even introduced a bill to the House yet. It has to go through a whole legislative process and then it would have to go through a local government process. So I don't. I think there's going to be a huge gap in terms of not having the regional fuel tax and not having revenue from a congestion charge. But even then, Wayne Brown suspects the funds gathered through congestion charging won't be enough to cover the full cost of Auckland's infrastructure projects. It's not clear where the rest of the money will come from. It'll be something we debate from with the government over the next coming months. The government's draft transport policy statement will include more details on how it plans to raise revenue to pay for projects. It's expected to be released in the next few weeks. Southland residents are worried their homes and batches at a small beach community will be swept into the Waio River as swift waters claw into the banks there. A local state of emergency has been declared for Blue Cliffs as the river swells from recent heavy rain that take gravel and sand with it. Locals have been calling for action from their local council for more than a year to no avail and now they're facing potential evacuation. Tess Brunton is in Blue Cliffs and filed this report. Blue Cliffs is a peaceful community of 18 properties, mainly batches, but more permanent residents have also moved here in the past decade. 
Behind Joan Redpath's house, steps used to go down to a wide gravel and grassy bank her family used to whitebait from, looking out towards the sea and a long gravel spit. Now the steps just drop off into the Waiho River. We probably lost a good 10 metres overnight of that gravel bar and it's yeah, pretty frightening really. Joan Redpath says the river has always moved and taken a little bit of sand and gravel away during floods or when the water is let out of the hydro lakes upstream. But in June last year, the river mouth started to move east, washing away a massive amount of land and a chunk of the road. She says residents have been asking local councils for action, but that hasn't happened. She'd like to see the river mouth moved to ease the pressure on the banks. It's a little bit upsetting. None of us want to leave. Um, We're all quite set that we wish to stay here. As silly as that may sound, this is home and people don't have anywhere else to go. They don't have any other land. This is all that they have. Down the road, a former landfill has water lapping against it. Ms Redpath says the Southland District Council was starting to clear it. Worried rubbish would wash into the river. So they started digging it out and then it was reported that there was explosive there so all the work stopped and that's how it is now. It's just been closed with a big fence but unfortunately the last few days that fence is now in the river because the land is all eroded away. Henry Thompson has owned a crib in the area for 30 years. Some of the fellows have got their cribs very close to the bank and the river and the sea's come right in. It's only got the sea's only got to knock that spit down and it comes right over up to the bank where the cribs are and it washes the, the bank away and that's what'll happen. The cribs will end up in the river. He's been worried about his property for a few years. The council and all these uh, different ones, environment south and all that, they're not worried about it. They couldn't care less about it. They don't want to do anything with the place. Tuatapiti resident Gary Reid was checking on one of his friends and says a lot of land has been swept away. Could be a good 20, 30 metres of land is gone from down here where all the white boaters used to camp. There used to be caravans and everything down there and tent sites. This year they couldn't do that down there because it started carving it away when that mouth changed. He says residents are gutted. With the permanent residents, they've been fighting this now for ages to try and get the council to do something about it. Nothing's happened, and this is, and this is where we're at now, state of emergency. Emergency management controller Simon Mapp says declaring an emergency means steps can be taken to open the river mouth bar to prevent further erosion. But he says it's a very difficult engineering task and the risks have to be weighed up. Meanwhile, residents now face a nervous wait after being asked to prepare to evacuate at short notice, with more rain expected over the weekend. It was Tess Brunton reporting from Blue Cliffs. Well, joining us now is Southland District Mayor Rob Scott. So, kia ora, good morning. Good morning, how are you? Very well, thanks. You would have heard from some of the residents in that story saying they felt that the, uh, the council hadn't done enough, didn't care enough uh, and hasn't acted quickly enough. How do you respond to that? Well, we've been, um, since sort of June last year, like one of the residents had said, we've been sort of actively involved there between ourselves and, and the regional council and we had um, a, a public meeting out um, in Tuatapiri in August. So we've been monitoring the situation 
And we had some floods, um, which is actually another state of emergency back in September last year, and we've been actively monitoring it since then. And it sort of started to improve and get better. It's a very dynamic situation out there with that um, river mouth moving up and down the the bar, and it was actually starting to improve, and then yeah, all of a sudden things got a whole lot worse, which has left us into this situation now. So we are looking at... Um, we, we did a lot of work back in September around the um, requirements to, to move that mouth. So we're we're on the front foot now with a whole lot of planning and everything already have been done to, to get that um, work underway. So where are you at with moving that river mouth? So it's um, it's like um, Simon said, it's a very technical um, engineering piece of work. So we're basically um, getting the equipment and everything shifted down. It's a lot of big equipment to get down there. So the contractor's... Um, starting to get work underway to, to get that equipment there and we've also got to get that Wyo River at the sort of right conditions and the right height um, it, sort of we've got to get all the ducks in a row to be able to get the best um, impact from that work and Meridian has been really good as well we've been working with them Okay, I mean it sounds yeah. like a degree of urgency is needed here, I mean you're losing Correct. tens of metres of, of land sometimes overnight by the sound of things, is this realistic that you're going to be able to save these properties? What's the reality of the situation there? We're hoping so. Um, obviously, it's a dynamic environment. We've got some more rain predicted tomorrow. It's, it's pretty calm at the moment. Um, a couple of days ago, the, the river was 2.7 metres above above normal, so it's, it's dropped a lot. It's just over a metre now. So things are working in our favour, and, and we're working as fast as we can to, to address that. So... It's, it's kind of been a perfect storm over the last um, couple of weeks for, for the residents and uh, we're doing everything that we can. And we're also putting support around those residents as well. So if anyone, we've got um, accommodation set up in Tuatapari for anyone that's uncomfortable and wants to move or if anyone needs to move. So yeah, we're working as, as fast as we can. Yeah, but I mean, they may have somewhere to go in the short term, but they're worried their homes are going to be swept away by the river, which sounds uh, like a real possibility. Um, there is a possibility for for a couple of the homes there and, and potentially more if the erosion continues. So, yeah, we're, we're doing whatever we can at the moment to, to mitigate that risk as, as fast as possible. What With the state of emergency, what led to that actually being declared um, after this process has been going on, obviously, for some time? What was the, the tipping point there? Well, effectively, the level of the erosion that was coming through, it, it was exponential. Like on um, a couple of days ago, between sort of 8 o'clock in the morning and 3 o'clock in the afternoon, we lost three metres of, of, of land there. So it got to the point where we needed to move really quickly. And with the, I mean, the, they talked about the landfill there as well. And obviously the property is very important, but we've also got the environment to protect with that landfill. So, and that we'd fenced that off and, and that's actually the fence is now in the water so there's a whole lot of different angles coming through all, all at once so it, it led to, to needing to make that declaration. Do you not have sort of well accurate modelling about what what is actually going to happen there? It sounds like you've sort of been caught on the hop by these developments. No, the the, the regional council's been, been there pretty much every week since September last year and they, they have been um, modeling, uh, the environment kind of makes its own mind up as to what it's going to do, but they have been actively monitoring levels. Um, we've got um, overlay maps with drone footage and everything on, so that um, that they have been keeping a very close watch on it. And yeah, it, it's a very dynamic. With myself going there from um, June last year, regularly having a look and seeing how much it actually changes um, week by week. The, the mouth moves up and down, so it's. Um, 
it's unpredictable and it's very hard to kind of work out exactly what it's going to do. But it's, um, yeah, we're, we're looking at resolving that now. Okay, just finally then, what's your advice to residents given just how quickly things can be changing? I mean, are they safe to be in their homes at the moment? What are you saying to them? Yeah, at the moment they're safe, but, but we are keeping a, a close watch and, and we've got um, contact with all of the residents on the ground all the time and we've got um, measures in place should they feel uncomfortable and want to evacuate. So yeah, we totally understand that it's not a not a nice situation for them at all and, and we're working with them closely. No, OK. Thank you for your time this morning. That was Southland uh, Mayor Rob Scott. Now the building of well over 100 classrooms, two teaching blocks and two school gyms are in doubt with the new uh, Education Minister, Erica Stanford, rebuking officials over their handling of the projects. Phil Pennington has the list from the Ministry showing who was impacted and why. He joins us now. Good morning, Phil. Morena Corrin. This sounds like quite the uh, the stalling in these projects. Yeah, I mean, they're talking about rising costs, about role growth changing, uh, forecasts changing, but also reprioritisation. We learned about this when we went to the Ministry to say, hey, how is that Marlborough merger going? This is this huge project to merge two colleges intermediate down there. Not well. That one is really, it's not sort of back burner. It's not on any burner. They're just trying to figure out how to make it work because it's at over $170 million. When we asked about that, it transpires actually there's 20 projects that are on hold now. They've put them on hold in, since September, they say, and those three reasons that I outlined, nine of these are in Auckland, so about half of them, uh, 63 classrooms there, 52 elsewhere, a couple of gyms, two other teaching blocks. You're probably adding up 150 classrooms. And if you remember that last budget last May, promised 300 new classrooms. Well, this adds up to half of those. It won't be those classrooms, but that's the scale that we're talking about. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Firstly, reprioritisation because of demographics. I mean, what? So they start a project, and by the time they've got halfway through it, they realise they don't need it. Yes. Well, (laughs) we guessed. They've given us thin gruel here in terms of they're explaining what that actually means. But if you take Mike Newell, who's the principal down at James Hargest College in Invercargill, he is scratching his head. He has water coming through the ceiling, falling on his children's heads, and has had done for six or seven years, including in their special needs class, the most vulnerable kids. He says they have to move their desks out of the way in a certain wind. Now, he was promised and has final designs down to the very light switches, he says, of 14 classrooms. Now he finds the word reprioritisation. He was saying to me yesterday, I'm not sure what that means. I want to see their priority list. I suspect that they're maybe, he, he's thinking that down south they get shoved to the back, but he wants to see the ministry's priority list. He says the ministry has been doing a good job, but it's been intermittent, and now they are on this hold, and he wants to know when it might happen. He says they have to get these built. He thinks they will be built. He says the buildings are shot, but now it's about when is that going to happen? What you see here too, really interesting, Corin, is that at Kaipara, they've had an innovation block promised for years. They were all very excited about it. Then suddenly this happens, the pause is at. They complained and the Minister of Education has stepped in. She says to us yesterday, she looked into the Kaipara situation and she found that the Ministry had not done a good enough job. She got the the Secretary of Education to apologise and send a letter. We asked to see that. We weren't allowed to. But then interestingly, Erica Stanford says she went looking at all the other projects and she has... She is saying that the ministry has done poor communication, but crucially not managed the projects properly, not delivered properly. Have they over-promised? Raised expectations is what she says without delivering on them. Interesting, isn't it?
How much of that do you think, when we look back at the last year, two years, and the surge in inflation building costs, the difficulties in getting anything built in this country, do you think the ministry has just run afoul here? Yes, and they do talk about that rising construction costs. I mean, this has been a theme across all sorts of projects, and not just roads, of course, now it's got schools, and of course, they, and, and health. They've got a huge headache. Um, it's not getting any better. One interesting thing to, to add is that, the, you know, the 7.5% that the ministry has to find in cost savings for the new government, which I understand they have to deliver their, project, their proposals for that next week, that does not include capital projects at schools. So that will be a relief to schools. But I think all schools who are on the line to get classrooms built, they will look at these 20 and they will be worried because there are projects here, as I say, James Hargis and others, that were, that were poised to go, that have waited for years and that have crucial needs, water falling on children's heads, and they don't know where they're the, at. The, 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 the thing is, we've, got, we've had uh, record um, population growth, you know, big immigration, we've got, uh, mm. we're going to need more classrooms. You would think, planning-wise... You would hope that you'd want to sort of do a lot of this stuff in the when the residential building sector maybe is cooling off a little bit. It's counter-cyclical. So surely there's a big focus on getting the planning right here. Schools I've talked to have told me that the ministry has been getting better at that and bundling things together and trying to make savings. But you look at Maharangi College in Walkworth, that's a real growth area, right? Eight classrooms promised now that, that is put on pause because of cost. I've been endeavouring to talk to them. So, you know, nine schools in Auckland, high growth in all of those areas. Um, it may be, of course, that projects in other parts, they go, OK, we'll move that up to the front of the queue. But for the families and the whanau and the schools involved, the teachers and the principals, this is a real headache and they are now not sleeping um, soundly now with these figures coming out. Just one last question. So the context of this, too, is that the government is looking for savings of, what, 7.5%? 75 7.5% for Ministry of Education, is it? Uh, is... Are these projects part of that, or no. is this because it should just be no, sort of? No. So, so, so that's capital very, spending. That should yeah, be separate. Very clear to get Ministry of Education yesterday to spell that out. They said no capital projects like this are not part of that seven and a half percent. All right. Nevertheless, yeah. they are trying to find savings. Yeah, it's in that context. Okay, very good. Uh, and we should just note. Thank you, Phil Pennington. Well, the future of Whakapapa ski field is veering off course. Locals are blaming the government for not exploring broader funding alternatives. The Crown's top bidder has backed out of negotiations and there are questions over ongoing government support and, of course, uncertainty about whether this ski season can go ahead. The Minister for Regional Development, Shane Jones, has declined to comment on the situation. Ruapehu Skifield Stakeholders Association and Scotel Alpine Resort owner Sam Clarkson is on the line with us now. Kia ora, good morning Sam. Uh, well, the, the troubles at uh, the ski field have been uh, well canvassed over a few years now. That sort of limped through last season uh, with some uh, government funding there. W- what has gone wrong now? Well, I think things are going right. I think we're veering back on course. What we saw last season is, just, despite the doomsayers saying it was all over, that the season did trade, and the uh, liquidators' report released not long ago showed that it traded profitably. So what we have now with the pullout of the previous bidder is the opportunity to sit round the table with MB and the the new government and put together the deal, which is the deal that should have been pursued all along. And what is that deal? Which is for the government to forgive the debt that already exists, because that, you know, let's admit it, that, that money's gone, regardless of outcome. 
and to get industry experts in to analyse properly the situation and get on with the job. So who's going to run it? Who's going to run it? People with industry expertise. We have those people ready to go. Okay, so it's not an issue. You think it's a good thing the Crown's top bidder has pulled out. The government is, I mean, there's no commitment, though, for ongoing support from the government. Will they need to forgive about $15 million worth of debt? Uh, They need to realise that those short-term privateer bidders were never going to be the long-term solution. That to get a truly intergenerational solution to the problem of Ruapehu, We've just got to get back to the basics of running ski fields well. So let's get that happening. So what about the issue of the limited licence from from DOC being 10 years? Um, is that Do you see that as an issue? Oh, you see, that's the point, though, is that Rupert Alpine Lifts Limited holds 60-year licences. So this dream of um, creating new co's selling it off and sailing happily off into the sunset was always a fantasy because of the issues of concessions and the minefield of treaty negotiations and what are the reasons? Rupert Alpine Lift has concessions. That's the, that's the um, starting point for the solution here. So have you spoken with, what have your, your discussions with the government been around, with the, with the new government been around this? Are, are they, do they also think it's a, a good thing their top bidder is backed out of negotiations? Well, to be fair, we've had election, post-election, coalition, Christmas, Waitangi Day, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Parliament only sat the other day. So we, they and we haven't yet had the opportunity to actually say, right, Now we need to pay attention to this. But I think now is the time. I think that MB have had nigh on two years now to come up with a solution. They have not succeeded. It is time for those people to step back or maybe step aside and allow a fresh look at the solution that was staring at them in the face all along. We can do this. But it needs people to have a fresh look. Are we going to have a ski season at Whakapapa and Tūroa this this winter? I see absolutely no reason not to. I don't believe there's bailouts required other than that these consultants who have sucked millions of dollars out of this process up to date and have not produced a result, it's time for them to be told, thank you very much, Move along, we're going to get some experts in on this finally. Well, thank you for your thoughts this morning. That was Ruapehu Skifield Stakeholders Association and Scotel Alpine Resort owner Sam Clarkson uh, just discussing the future of the Whakapapa Skifield. Lee Valley resident Nicola Reef went to bed last night not knowing whether the works of art she'd spent the past year creating for a Christchurch exhibition would be in ashes or not this morning. Ms Reef lives in one of the 11 evacuated houses in the Tasman district. This is where firefighters have been working to contain uh, a few blazes across nine hectares of pine forest around 20 kilometres out of Nelson. Uh, She joins us now. Kia ora, good morning. A rough night for you, worrying about your property. Good morning, how are you? Yep, um, it's okay. I'm I'm doing okay, yep. What do you know about the fate of your property? 
Um, we're okay at the moment because we're behind the hill where the fire is and um, it looks like they're getting it under control. The firefighters are doing a brilliant job. You know, we have to kind of leave it in their hands. So as long as the weather stays like it's been and the wind doesn't pick up, then we should be all fine. Yeah. Okay. Are they keeping you up to date with what is going on? Yeah, yeah, we had a meeting yesterday with the residents and, and all the services and the, the, the information was great and um, we all know what's going on and, um, yeah, it's all good, yeah. Nonetheless, being evacuated from your home must have been um, a rather unpleasant yeah. experience. What was that like? <laughs> Bit of a shock, yeah. I didn't know about the fire until a friend said, uh, asked if I was okay and then I was like, had a check on social media and saw that there were some fires and 10 minutes later the police were on the doorstep. So I'm like, yep, I'm ready to go. <laughs> yep. So where did you go to? Um, I'm at my parents' place. They're about um, 15 minutes' drive away. So I've got the cats and the dog and managed to, to get out with them. And yep. And your neighbours all got out okay as well? Yeah, yeah, everybody's out. Everybody's safe. So that's the main thing. Yeah, and all the properties so far, you know, no, no damage, nothing's, yeah. They're all good. I think the latest is they're hoping to have this fire um, contained or, or extinguished by the end of today. So do you know when you can get back to your house? Um, we've been told that, yeah, the same thing. It should be contained by the end of today. That doesn't mean that it's out. So um, after that, there will be a limited access um, to and from home to check stock and feed animals. Um, and then from there, we're not really sure. Yeah, it'll take you a while to herd up those cats and things and get them back in the car as well, won't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Hey, uh, that is some uh, good news for you. It sounds like uh, Nicola Reef there, one of the uh, residents who was evacuated from Lee Valley with a number of fires that had popped up there, which uh, firefighters say should be under control by the end of the day. A transport commentator says the government's plan to scrap the region's fuel tax is ideologically motivated and Aucklanders will suffer. Transport Minister Simeon Brown says the government will explore alternative funding mechanisms such as tolls or time-of-use charges, but it's unclear when such tools would become available. The editor of Greater Auckland, Matt Lowry, joins us now. Uh, Good morning, Matt. Matt, um, the government had promised to do this. They're fulfilling an election promise. What's the issue? I think the issue is that it actually hurts all Aucklanders to do this, and that is Many of these projects are ones that Aucklanders have, have asked for and, and voted for many times, and they're, they're projects that would help Aucklanders get out of congestion and out of reduce emissions and um, make it easier to get around. How does it hurt those Aucklanders who perhaps are low, low income, have to travel long distances, uh, can't use public transport to work? They're going to be saving money every week. Uh, but the point is that it, makes it, it will make it easier for them to, get, to use public transport or other options, and it gets, or, or it makes it easier for other people who, so, that, so therefore it reduces congestion and, and gets other people off the road. Is there not the potential use of congestion charging which could do that? Yeah, that would be great if we could do that, and, but the problem is that could be quite some time away, and in the meantime there is likely to be a funding gap, and, and these projects are going to be either cancelled or, or delayed. In a way, it seems as though much of the debate is around the the priorities around the projects which the money is used for. Critics of the fuel tax like to point to speed bumps and traffic lights that have been redone. Is there an issue around the nature of the projects and whether or not the money was successfully used? Uh, well, 
I think I think that's up to Auckland to decide, and, and Auckland has decided that those projects are a priority, and and this is this was a funding mechanism for that. And the alternative is that yes, the council could, could keep doing it another way. They could they could fund it through rates, um, but it's up to Auckland to decide what those projects are and and what gets built. And uh, it's not really it shouldn't really be the government deciding that Auckland can't build or something or do something that it wants to do. But it has to be the government's decision, doesn't it, when it comes to tax, the ability to tax New Zealanders. Are you saying that should be something which local government should have the right to do? Yeah, I, I think that it's, it's the projects are decided by Auckland as a funding tool to, to do that. Now, Auckland could choose to do it another way, as in like things like rate, rate rises, uh, but, but the fuel tax was an easy way to, to raise that revenue and also to um, to help encourage people to, to think about how they travel and, and, and travel around. And I should also note that, that even with the fuel tax, fuel prices in Auckland are often typically less than they are outside, outside of Auckland, so it's not like Auckland is paying a lot more than everyone else. But the fuel tax, the point the Minister makes is it is regressive. It does, as a percentage of someone's income, a lower income driver in Auckland is going to feel that fuel tax in a far greater way. I think all, all taxes have a, a regressive element to some, to some degree, and so yes, there's, there's going to be um, some people who are going to be hurt by it, and but that, that, that's no different from any other any other tax or any other decision that gets made around around what we build and what we don't build. And I think what we find is that more Aucklanders are hurt by the fact that there's they're stuck in condition with no other options but to drive, and everyone is stuck, because everyone is having to do it, then everyone gets gets caught, and and their, their cost is their time. Okay. It's been done. It's being removed. That can't change. What now then? I mean, what is the op- what is the best option to fill those gaps? Well, I think the best option is the council need to need to look at how they can raise raise their uh, council rates to to help cover that that lost revenue. Because without it, it's not just the the fuel tax that goes that we lose as a result of of this decision. It's also all the co-funding that that the council would normally get, like they do get for any other project or any other council gets. From the National Land Transport Fund to, to deliver these, so it's not just the immediate cost that, that we lose. It's it's, a, it's a, you know at least twice that that we that we Auckland is losing out on if we don't do something about that. So you believe rates should increase? There shouldn't be a uh, an axing of some of these projects. No, these, these projects are ones that, that Auckland have said that they really want. And the mayor's released a survey showing that just twenty six percent of people want the what the fuel tax gone if it meant that this, these projects were cut. And so the, these are, are incredibly, incredibly important projects for helping get people give people options for how they get around and making Auckland uh, you know, a less congested and, and better place to live. It's a bit of a bind, though, isn't it? Because you can understand the mayor and councillors are going to be reluctant to increase rates any further than they already have to, uh, and not least because at some point they will try and be re-elected, and that becomes difficult if they're having to propose large rate increases. Well, exactly, and, and, and that's that's I guess why why the government have, have done this. They they want it for for you know they say we, we've removed it, um, but it, but the reality is that the, the people that are hurt by removing it, the, the projects that get stopped or delayed, uh, are Aucklanders. The time of use charges, uh, the, the the uplift of um, rates, you know, around uh, key infrastructure projects where people pay higher rates if they live nearby them. I mean, how quickly could they come on board? Is that a long? Are they long term mechanisms? Do you think? Yeah, that they are. I mean, for, for time of use uh, 
idea. Yeah, there is legislation that the previous government had ready to, ready to go. They hadn't introduced it yet, but it is sitting there ready for, for the government to, to, to introduce if they, if they choose to. Um, but, yeah, that's going to take some time to go through Parliament and then to actually design and, and implement the system. So that's, you know, that's not going to be something that's delivered before between now and when, when the, the fuel tax disappears. Uh, battery capture, there's been a lot, very little work done on actually understanding what, what that might look like. And so that could be even further away. What about the um, use of private enterprise here, public-private partnerships, and maybe even is there sort of a hybrid model where you try and get some of the super fund money involved or something like that? Is there not options there for some of those larger projects? Could they be uh, could they be sped up? Well, that's really a financing tool. It's not a funding tool, and that is it's basically like having a mortgage on a house. You still have to pay your mortgage. You know, you're not paying the full upfront cost, but you're still having to pay that mortgage, and you're paying it at a higher rate over a period of time, so it's, it doesn't solve the, the, the funding shortfall. Well, or, it, might, or, it might enable the council to not have to carry so much debt on its books. Well, no, it doesn't, because that, that, those, those costs still have to exist, and, and those, that, that, that capital is still, is still needed, and, and it's still counted for in those future years. And it, in fact, what it, what it does do is it locks up future councils and governments from being able to, um, to, to change priorities, because all the funding is, is diverted into that, and we're seeing that already with projects like Purple to Walkworth and, and Transmission Gully. All right, Matt, thank you very much for your thoughts. That is the editor of Greater Auckland. You've been listening to Morning Report Top Stories. 